Good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open up to Acts chapter 3. That's where we'll be in our time in the Word together today, Acts chapter 3. I want to remind you of uh, something we have coming up next Sunday night. We've been talking about this for a few weeks now. And uh, it's Valentine's weekend, and we're going to have a, a special event we're calling I Love My Church. Uh, you get to love on your spouse the night before. Saturday night is Valentine's night. And then the next day, uh, we want to encourage you to come and just love on one another. The Bible gives us a dozen or more times this command uh, to love one another. And this is in the context of the body of Christ. And so we want to do that um, next Sunday night. We're going to come together, and we're going to share in our, our second annual chili cook-off. Last year, our own Jamie Stennett won uh, the chili cook-off, and uh, others have already said that she's going down this year. And so bring your best pot of chili, and uh, we'll be having that at, at 5 o'clock, and then uh, we'll be having a special time of worship together uh, once we finish up the chili cook-off. And uh, be sharing with you some things next Sunday night uh, that I think you'll want to be here for, some, some directional things, uh, some vision things, some things that I think uh, I see the Lord doing in our midst, and and how we can engage more there. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about next Sunday night, just as a kind of a preview of that, is uh, we, we introduced a couple of months ago uh, some potential um, plans for expanding this building. Uh, we're kind of in a tight spot in terms of uh, classroom space these days, and uh, so we're, we're looking at the possibility of adding some classrooms onto this building. If you want to see those plans, as you walk out the door today, there's a little brochure uh, it looks just about like this. You can pick one of those up, and you'll see kind of what we're thinking about. This is nothing we've yet voted on, and we're not ready uh, to launch into it just yet. But next Sunday night, we're going to take a, a special offering uh, to go toward this potentially if we were to decide uh, to move in that direction. So next Sunday night, I love my church. Hope that you'll be here for that. Today, we're going to talk about, from Acts chapter 3, what it means for the church to be devoted to the gospel. The reality for the church is this. The church has only been given one message. Now, it demonstrates itself in many different ways, but if you were to sum up the message that Christ gave to his church to deliver to the world, and that's what the picture was. Jesus, when he ascended back into heaven, he commissioned those apostles, those ones that were sent out. He had given them a message, and it was a singular message. Again, that would be demonstrated in many different ways, but a singular message, and it's what we call the gospel, the good news. And throughout the life of the church, as we are walking with Christ and growing in Christ, the gospel becomes more and more central to who we are and to what we do. We can talk about marital issues, and we should, but we should only talk about them in light of the gospel. We can talk about social problems, and we probably should address some of those, but we should only talk about them in light of this gospel. We can talk about the needs of our world and economic issues, and even at times, I think it's okay for us to get into some political stuff, but we ought to always look at it through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because this is the church's one message. And it's good for us regularly, even week by week, to come back to this gospel, to be reminded of why it is that we gather together, to be reminded of what we've been saved from and what we've been saved for. And so we're going to do that again this morning as we talk about being devoted to the gospel. Here in Acts chapter 3, we find uh, the Apostle Peter's second sermon. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. As a result of Peter's first sermon, 
3,000 people were added to the church. 3,000 were baptized and added to the church as a result of his first sermon. I wish I could tell you that was the result of my first sermon. I think the result of my first sermon, people walked away and they were just scratching their heads. What in the world was that guy talking about? I'm not sure I still know what that was all about. But here in Acts chapter 3, we see Peter's second sermon. And it's much like the first sermon. It's the same basic message, this message of the gospel. And so if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning as we read these scriptures. Beginning in verse 11 of Acts chapter 3. This is the word of God given to us. It begins there, a reminder of what we looked at last week. This lame beggar has been healed by Peter and John on their way to the temple. He has been enabled to walk for the first time in his 40 plus years of living. And it says in verse 11, while he, this, this lame beggar who had been healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. They were astounded by what had happened to this man. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And here comes this second sermon. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You can be seated. Father, would you bring us back to the gospel this morning? Lord, I pray that you would bring some in this room face to face with the reality of the gospel for the first time today. You are the God who opens blind eyes, unstops deaf ears. You are the one who causes those who are both physically and spiritually lame to be able to stand up and to walk. It is by your Spirit, that we are healed. And Lord, I also pray for those of us in this room 
who received the gospel for the first time maybe many years ago, perhaps even decades ago, may we be reminded of the glories of your grace today. May we be reminded of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. May we be reminded that this message was given to us to proclaim. And may we remember what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First question that we need to ask this morning as we talk about what it means to be devoted to the gospel is is we need to ask the question, what is the gospel? Because the reality today, even in our church culture here in America, is that many are seeking to redefine the gospel, to add to it, or in some instances to take away from it, to make it more palatable to a culture that is what I've often called post-Christian, to make it more desirable for those who don't desire it, to water it down, to alter it enough that others will be okay with it. What is the gospel? I want to recommend this little black book to you. I've discovered the power of little books over the last couple of years, and this is another one of those little books. You could read it in a weekend pretty easily. It's called What is the Gospel? And it's by Greg Gilbert. And he's just done an awesome job of taking the gospel and putting it in a form that is so easy for us to comprehend. What I'm about to show you comes straight out of this book. It's a very simple little book. What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert? First thing he says is, the gospel is the message of God. That's where it's got to begin. The gospel is the message of God, but, but who is this God? He is the God to whom we are accountable because He is our Creator. He takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then just five days later, He created man and woman, both in His image, created in the image of God we were. He created us, and we are accountable to our Creator. Creation implies ownership. That's the idea here, and we are accountable to a God who is holy. A God who is holy, perfect in all of His attributes. He is completely without sin. This is the God the Bible speaks of. We're accountable to this God. Secondly, the gospel is the story of man. And this reality that we have sinned against this holy God, our Creator, and because of that sin, we are deserving of His judgment. Now, that's not a popular part of the gospel today. There are many that want to write out that last phrase that I just said. Yeah, God created us, and He loves us so much. He's got a great plan for our lives, so just come and give your lives to Jesus. But they leave out the reason why Jesus is necessary for the gospel. It's that we have a problem that we can't fix. That we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. We have sinned against a holy God. We deserve His judgment. And if the gospel stopped there, we would be without hope. Praise be to God, it didn't stop there. The third part of the gospel is this. It's the message of Christ. That while we were deserving of the judgment of God, of the wrath of God, we were deserving of the punishment that was due our sins, that God acted in Christ Jesus to save us. He rescued us by Christ's death at the cross. He who knew no sin, that being Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us in our place, our substitute, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And the Bible says the amazing thing about salvation is it's not just that he wipes our sins away, but then he then takes us and clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. You see, it's not just that my sins are forgiven. That's only half the gospel. The rest of the gospel is I've now been clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when a holy God now looks upon those who have been redeemed by Jesus' blood, he sees not our sin, but Christ's righteousness. He sees the end from the beginning. That's the kind of God that he is. He knows what he's making us to be. So God acted in Christ Jesus to save us. But if we stopped there, if we stopped there without going to this fourth part of the gospel, we could easily be left wondering, well, that's all fine and good, but what do I do with it? Yeah, okay, a holy God that I'm accountable to. I'm deserving of his judgment because I've sinned. He sent Jesus to save me, but what do I do with that? And that's where the fourth part of the gospel, where we're going to focus in today, becomes so crucial. The response of the gospel is one of repentance and faith. This is the consistent message throughout the New Testament. When, when in Acts chapter 2, when Peter finishes that great sermon at Pentecost, the, the brothers said to him, the people in, in the audience said to him that day, Brothers, what must we do? What do we do with this, Peter? It's great that you talked about. I don't know where that comes from, but that's your wake-up call for the morning. It's, the, it's this message of, the, of God. We're accountable to Him. Yes, we heard about Jesus and how He saves us from our sins. It's all great. But what do we do? And Peter gives them this response, repent and believe. The response to salvation is one of repentance and faith. And that's what we're going to focus in on today. C.J. Mahaney, one of my favorite authors, said this about the gospel. He says, never be content with your current grasp of the gospel. The gospel is the life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. It has more facets than a diamond. Its depth man will never exhaust. And so whether you've been walking with Jesus for just a few days or if you've been walking with Jesus for a few decades, the reality is we keep coming once and again back to this gospel truths, back to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, back to the fact that He is the Son of God who died in the place of sinners so that we might have eternal life through Him. We come back to this gospel again and again. There is no plan B and there is no greater portion of Christianity than the gospel. It begins and it ends there. And that's where we'll come back to today. Verses 11 through 16 here of Acts chapter 3 reminds us in Peter's sermon that the gospel is a message of trusting in the Savior. It's a message of faith. Now, are we living in a culture right now that loves the idea of faith? In fact, we're living in a culture that for the most part encourages people to have faith But the problem with our culture's ideal of faith is that our culture is okay with faith for its own sake. But the biblical reality about faith is this. Faith is only as good as its object. You see, we're living in a culture that says, just believe whatever you want to and believe it sincerely and that will be good enough. So if you want to believe in Buddha, that's great. Just believe it sincerely. That'll be good enough. If you want to follow the million gods of the Hindus, that's great. If you want to go after the New Age movement, that's fine. Whatever you want to do, even if you want to go the the atheist or agnostic route, you can do that as well. Just Just be fervent in your faith. Be sincere. Be passionate about whatever you believe. Don't judge anybody else, by the way. Let everybody have their own path. 
There's a million ways to God. It's this picture of, of God being at the top of a mountain and we can take many roads to get there. That's what our culture says. As long as you've got faith, that's good enough. Let me tell you, the Bible is, is, speaks directly opposed to that idea because biblically speaking, faith is only as good as its object. Your faith, no matter how fervent it is, no matter how passionate it might be, is only as good as where you're putting your faith. We want to find ourselves trusting in the Savior. This is the message of the gospel. Who is this Savior? Look at verse 13. First thing we find about him is he is the servant you sold out. He's speaking there to this Jewish audience, and he says the God of, our, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the God of our fathers. By this time, the, the Gentiles had not yet been added to the church. Uh, it was only a Jewish audience here. He says, the God of our fathers, he glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. He glorified his servant Jesus, and, and this would have reminded them of Isaiah 53. If you were to flip over to Isaiah 53, you would find this great passage of the suffering servant. And, and this passage teaches how God was going to raise up one who would be a servant. Jesus, remember, said, I came not to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is the same Jesus who, on the night that he was betrayed, he took a towel and he wrapped it around his waist and he took the place of the lowliest servant in washing his disciples' feet. But Peter says, this servant that God sent to save you, you rejected, you sold him out. But not just that, it gets worse. He's the righteous one you rejected. Isaiah 53 also refers to this servant as the righteous one, but it's not a picture of one that we would exalt. The picture in Isaiah 53 was one who has been rejected. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. He's deeply acquainted with grief. He's the righteous one you rejected. And then again in verse 14, he goes even deeper. He is the life giver that you killed. Sorry, verse 15. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a pretty rough way to start out a sermon. Peter basically stands in front of them and they say, you want to know, you want to know how this guy that's leaping through the temple got healed? Yeah, you remember that dude Jesus that you crucified a few weeks ago? Yeah, he healed this man. He's the author of life, and you killed him. He's the servant that God promised back in Isaiah 53 that he was going to sin to save you from your sins, and you rejected him. I don't know about you, but Peter had not uh, ever read that book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. I mean, he basically stands in front of his audience and said, all right, listen up, you bunch of murderers. I'm getting ready to share the gospel with you. And he is dead serious, as serious as could be truth of the matter is, folks, we probably could stand to hear more messages like this today. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about hellfire and brimstone and a bunch of screaming and yelling, but we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that we were not passive in terms of the cross. I think we have this wrong idea that there's like a spiritual neutral zone. We know that there are bad people out there somewhere. Okay, there, there's bad people out there. We hear this talk a lot. 
And then we know that there are people who have received the gospel and are trusting in Christ. But we have this idea rolling around in our heads that between the bad people out there and those who are following Jesus Christ fervently and by faith, that, that there's just a bunch of good people. You hear this all the time. There's a, there's a lot of good people out there. They're just not following Jesus. Folks, that is not what this Bible teaches. And I know that this is a hard message. But when Peter was standing up and pointing at them and saying, you bunch of murderers, you need the gospel, let us put ourselves in their place and understand that that is exactly where we are apart from Christ. It's not that we're good people that Jesus just needs to come along and do something for in order that they might go to heaven. The Bible says there's none who are righteous apart from Christ. Not even one. All have turned away. All have gone astray. The picture of sinners apart from Christ is that we are shaking our angry fists in the face of a holy God and telling Him, I do not want you. So much so that I believe with all my heart that had I been in the crowd that day when they were yelling crucify Him, it's very likely that I would have joined in the chorus. I know we don't want to think that way. We think of ourselves as good people that God just needs to come along and save or punch our ticket to heaven so we can enter on in. It's just not what the Bible teaches. That doesn't leave you in this place where all you feel is the guilt of that. There's more to the gospel, but you need to get to that place. You, you can't receive the good news of the gospel until you receive the bad news that we are sinners separated from God, living in open rebellion against Him, and we desperately need Jesus. Not just as an option for our living, as the only source. He says He is the author of life. He is the source. All real life comes to us from Him, and there is no other source. In Him we live and move and have our being. But secondly, the gospel is the message of faith, of trusting in the Savior. The gospel is also the message of, of turning from sin. And this is the part of the gospel that's so often left out today. It's this biblical word called repentance. And the word repentance is, is one of those $10 Bible words, but, but it's such a powerful word that I don't want us to leave it out. It's a word that means that I was marching headlong toward destruction. I was hell-bent on my own sin, and Jesus awakened me to the reality of that, spun me on my heel, and turned me in the other direction. And I began moving toward God, not because one day I figured it all out. That's not repentance. Repentance is not one day I figured it all out. Repentance is one day He opened my blind eyes. He unstopped my deaf ears. He caused the dead heart in me to begin to beat with a newness of life. He did all this for me and set me on a path toward Him. It was all His work. It was not that I was just smart enough to figure it out. It's all of His grace. But repentance is necessary. You see, these two aspects of the gospel response, repentance and faith, they work hand in hand, one with one, with one another. You can't have one without the other, and yet th there is a gospel being preached today that leaves out repentance because we got the wrong idea about repentance. We don't want to talk with people about sin. Let me tell you this. If we won't talk about sin, we can't see our need for the Savior. What do I need Jesus for? If I'm basically a good person, what do I need Jesus for? The Bible says, no, we're all sin. 
We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But there's two types of sins that are pointed out here. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, he says, And now, brothers, listen to this. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. I know that you crucified Jesus, but you really didn't know what you were doing. And see, there's two types of sins pointed out here. One type of sin is intentional, and another is done in ignorance. And that's still the reality today. But you, you remember what Jesus prayed for the people who were crucifying him? Remember what he said as they were hurling insults at him, as they were spitting upon him, as those soldiers were preparing to thrust that spear into his side? Do you remember what he prayed for them? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't have a clue. They don't realize that they have taken the author of life, the very reason that they have existent, they, the very, very reason they have existence, they have taken the author of life and they have put him on a criminal's cross. God, they don't know what they're doing. And you see, in the midst of that, you, you see this, this amazing picture of the fact that God does deal with two different types of sins. And we'll talk about how he deals with them in just a moment, but there's an Old Testament picture that I want to talk with you about just for a minute. In the Old Testament, if you were to go to Numbers 35, you might want to jot these down, you can look at them later. If you were to go to Numbers 35 or, or Joshua chapter 20, you would find in Numbers 35 it lays out a plan. In Joshua, Joshua chapter 20, they carry out the plan of God in reference to something that they called the cities of refuge. Now, there were six of these cities that were set up at various places in the promised land. Again, Numbers 35, Joshua 20, you'll see them described. These cities of refuge, six of them throughout the promised land, equally spaced out throughout the land. And the purpose of these cities was this. You see, God had already said that one of the greatest crimes that would be committed in the promised land was that of murder. You see, God takes human life very seriously whether it's the life of an unborn baby or a 99-year-old person. God takes life. He is the one who gives and He is the one who takes away and He's the only one that has the right to do so. And so there was this command given that capital punishment was not just an option. There was no situation in the Old Testament days where you would go rot in prison for 20 years while they were deciding whether they were going to kill you or not. It was an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And there was this reality of capital punishment that if someone died at your hand then your life was forfeit but you see they realized god realized god realized that there would be instances where a life would be taken unintentionally out of ignorance he describes it in numbers 35 he says imagine that one of you is out chopping down a tree and by accident your axe head flies off the handle and strikes another person and that person dies you didn't mean for that to happen. It happened in ignorance. You, you, didn't, you didn't intend for that. It was not premeditated murder. Uh, at the worst, it was maybe third-degree manslaughter. But somebody died, and it was at your hand. Because of your actions, someone was killed. In stepped these cities of refuge. Because you see, in those days, that if someone was killed in your family, the person who was the next of kin in that family uh, became what was known as the avenger of blood. You remember in the book of Ruth, when we walked through that, there was this uh, kinsman redeemer that they talked about in the book of Ruth. 
It's the same idea, it's the same kind of an idea with the avenger of blood. The closest family member was given the authority by God to take the life of someone who had killed their kinsman. And so in came these cities of refuge, where if you were the cause of someone's death, even though very unintentionally they died because of something you did, but you didn't mean for it to happen, then you could flee to one of these cities of refuge. And you would enter into the city and you would, you would call upon uh, those who were ruling over that city. The elders of the city would come out and they would try your case. And they would determine whether the, the actions that caused the death of this person were done intentionally or done in ignorance, intentional or unintentional. They would determine whether you were guilty of murder or what we might call today manslaughter. Now, if you were guilty of murder, they kicked you out of the city and handed you over to the avenger of blood who would take your life. But if you were guilty of manslaughter, they allowed you to remain there in the city where you could be free. As long as you remained within the city, you were free to go about your business. And when the high priest who was ruling at the time of your court case, when the high priest who was the spiritual leader of the land, when the high priest died, you could leave the city of refuge and go back to your homeland and be absolved of all guilt. I know you're going, why in the world are you sharing that with us? That sounds like a really strange system. I want you to see what God was doing in prefiguring, foreshadowing the gospel. There's so much grace in that picture. When, when Peter says here, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. I know you didn't know what you were doing. I, didn't know, I know you didn't know that you were killing the author of life. I know that you didn't realize who Jesus was, but I'm telling you who he is. And from this point forward, it's not going to be ignorance because you're going to know the gospel. You're going to know that Christ died in your place. From this point forward, you're not going to be able to say, well, I didn't know. You're going to know. What he's saying is flee to the city of refuge. Flee to Christ. Run to Christ. There you will find refuge for your souls, refuge from your sin. There you will find the only place where you can be forgiven and redeemed. But here's the amazing thing about the cities of refuge. You remember who had to die in order for that person to be absolved of their guilt? It was the high priest. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6. I love these verses. Hebrews chapter 6 says this, We who have fled for refuge, listen, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Why? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, Jesus is not just the city of refuge. Jesus is the high priest who died so that we could be free. And so we run to him, we abide in him in the gospel, we chase after him, we run and we abide in the city of refuge that is Christ, knowing full well that the high priest has already died in our place, that we might be set free. He's already done the work to absolve us of our guilt. And so we don't walk around bearing the load of our sins any longer. We are set free and clothed in his righteousness. This is the gospel. couple more things about this issue of repentance. First of all, repentance brings renewal and restoration. 
This is not just some neutral zone that we enter into. When we receive the gospel, repentance takes place. He says, repent therefore, verse 19, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. That's wiped away, erased. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. See, repentance brings renewal and refreshing. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come in church. We ought to be rejoicing in that reality. That old man that was deserving of death and hell in the grave has been rescued by Jesus Christ. We ought to be reveling in this week by week, but so often we, we come into this place and, and we're so downtrodden with all of our circumstances, not remembering that Christ has already trumped all of our circumstances. Repentance brings renewal. It brings restoration. You are a new person in Christ. And if there's not rejoicing because of that, Maybe we didn't receive the fullness of this good news. Repentance thoroughly results from God's gracious gift. The Bible says so clearly that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So many in our world today, they picture God as this judge who is just constantly pointing the finger saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. And the reality is we are guilty, guilty, guilty. But because of what Jesus did, He declares us righteous, righteous, righteous. And I've said this before, but I want to say it again this morning. Church, would you hear this? In Jesus, you are more than forgiven. You are declared righteous before a holy God. The great question of the gospel is not the one that our culture is so often asking. Well, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? That's what you hear asked so often. That's not the question that this book is asking. The question the Bible is asking is not how could a loving God send anybody to hell. The primary question here is how could a holy God look at sinful people, rebellious before Him, shaking their fists in His face, how could He look upon a sinful people and declare them righteous? And the answer, my friends, is Jesus. Repentance results from God's gracious gift. I love this quote from Albert Barnes. The highest blessing that can be conferred on men. You want the highest blessing God's got to offer? Here it is. The highest blessing that can be conferred on men is to be turned from sin. It is the source of all woes. Sin is the source of all of our woes. Every problem that mankind faces ultimately is as a result of sin. And if men are turned from that, they will be happy. You want happiness today? Run to the city of refuge, Jesus Christ. Therein you will find joy. Christ blesses no one in sin or while loving sin, but by turning them from sin. There may be joy in sin for a season, but you want everlasting joy that never fades away? Run to Jesus, the city of refuge, your great high priest who died for the joy set before him. The joy of rescuing lost sinners. So three responses to the gospel this morning. We'll end here. Three responses to the gospel. And, I, and I, want you, I want you to find yourself in one of these three this morning. And I can guarantee you, everyone in this room, you will find yourself in one of these three responses. And I want to encourage you to do that as we walk to them. First of all, 
the first and most prominent response to the gospel is one of rejection. To reject the gospel in unbelief and hardness of heart. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many are going to find it. The majority, most, are going to go that way. They're going to refuse to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. They're going to refuse to take hold of what God offers freely. They're going to refuse the way of repentance and faith, either because perhaps they think, well, I'm good enough, I don't need that. Or perhaps they think, I'm too bad, I can't possibly have that. But you see, in between those two, you you remind yourself that it's not about you. It's about what Christ has done for you. Yes, apart from Christ, you are a wicked sinner without hope. But because of Christ, because of His rescue bought for you at the cross and proved by His resurrection, God beckons you, says, come, come into the city of refuge. Come to Christ. Abide in Him. Be free in Him. He died for you so that you could have life. It was for freedom Christ set us free. Many will reject the gospel in unbelief and hardness of heart. The second response to the gospel is to receive the gospel through repentance and faith. It's a free gift. There's no no working your way toward it. There's no list of commands that you have to fulfill in order for it to be true for you. There's, There's no checklist. And so many of us, we spend so much of our lives looking for the checklist. God, what do I have to do for, to be, for you to be happy with me? What do I have to do to have your favor? And we forget that his favor was already purchased for us. And he extends it as a free gift, which many reject. But a few will receive. We receive it through repentance and faith, turning from sin and trusting Christ. And finally, the response, the third response is this, that we remember the gospel. I love one of the songs they sang earlier, talked about our forgetfulness, that we need to be reminded of the gospel, and it would not hurt any of us in this room, week in and week out, to come to this place on this Lord's day and be reminded of the gospel. Be reminded of who you were apart from Christ. I was wandering in darkness. Even as a seven-year-old boy, prior to coming to Christ, I was wandering in darkness. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord God has cast on him the iniquity of us all. It would not hurt us to be reminded of who we were apart from Christ, of who we are in Christ, and who we are becoming because of Christ. That's what we're about to do this morning. We're going to remember the gospel through a gift that God gave us called the Lord's Supper. We're going to have four stations set up in each corner of this room. There's two here and there are two in the back. I'm going to go ahead and have our men that are going to be doing that this morning. Go ahead and take your places as I prepare us for that. Be four stations around the room where you can take part in this awesome thing that God has given us, this remembrance of Christ's death and burial and resurrection. When we will take uh, of this little piece of bread, which reminds us of this, Christ's body was broken for you. Christ's body was broken for you. And then we'll follow that up with this little bit of juice, which will remind us that Christ's blood, every drop was spilled for you. He poured out His blood to blot out your sin.
in church. We've only been given one message. But how quickly we forget. Let's be reminded today. Before we get to that, though, I want to share with you the end. Acts chapter 3, bleeding over into chapter 4. What happened as a result of Peter's message? As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees that came upon them greatly annoyed. That's probably an understatement, by the way. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Their response, rejection. We don't want anything to do with that Jesus. And they arrested them. And they put them in custody until the next day. You can read the rest of this to find out the, the fullness of what God did. For it was already even, but listen to this last, listen to verse 4. But many of those who heard believed the word. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Now we could step back and go, man, that Peter, he was one preacher. Sermon number one, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Sermon number two, the number comes to 5,000. Do some quick math and you realize 2,000 more. It's like a second Pentecost happens here in this event. But you understand very clearly what Peter had already said. Do you really think it was by our power or our piety that we did this? No, it's the power of Jesus. And when it comes to Jesus, there's only three options, folks. Many will reject him. A few will receive him. And may those who receive him constantly remember. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then I'll prepare us to take the Lord's Supper together. Father, I simply want to give you thanks. for the good news of Jesus Christ. Apart from this good news, God, we've got nothing. No matter how wealthy we might be, how well educated we might be, no matter how nice we might be, how much we might think of ourselves, we've got nothing apart from Christ. But because of Christ, we become the inheritors of a kingdom. Because of Christ, we are rescued from our sins. Because of Christ, all the promises, the hundreds of promises that you made in your word are sure for us. They are certain because of what Christ did to seal all those promises for us. And Lord, would you help us in this moment? And I say, God, would you help us because I know how incapable we are apart from your empowering. Would you help us to consider what will our response be? Will we reject this gospel? And Lord, I believe for some in this place, God, it will be just one more rejection of many that have taken place. But somehow your mercies are new every day. And as long as there is life and breath in us, that too 
stands as a mark of Your grace, Your mercy, Your long-suffering with us. I pray that You cause faith to spring up in someone this morning as they turn from their sins and put their trust in Christ. Lord, I just simply pray this for us in these moments. Lord, you have your way with us. Do what you want to do, God. Put us in that place of surrender where you call the shots, where you do act as Lord over us. And it's more than words. Thank you for the good news. Now may we respond to it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how we're going to do this. Four stations around the room here. If you would like to take the Lord's Supper this morning in remembrance of the gospel, if you if you're a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member of this church. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've followed Him in believer's baptism, we invite you to one of these tables. You'll take just a piece of the, the bread that we have there and you'll dip it there in the juice. And in so doing, in so doing, you will remember this gospel. That His body was broken for you. His good news, the good news is that His blood was spilled for you. And that as you take of that, be remembered that in so doing... 1 Corinthians 11 says, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes again. That's what this moment is about, remembering. But perhaps you're not ready to remember yet because you have yet to receive. Kent and I will be sitting here at the front and I want to invite you if you'd like to receive the Lord Jesus this morning, to trust Him by faith, take Him at His word, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. That's His promise to you. It doesn't matter what you've done, how far you've strayed. You can give Him your laundry list. It's not a big deal to Him because He paid for it already. That was the big deal, the price that He paid. If you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, there is nothing holy about the two men that are going to stand here in the front. We just stand before you as sinners saved by grace. But what we can do is sit down with you and show you from God's Word how you can have the assurance of faith. So as we prepare to, to share this song in this time of remembering the Lord's Supper together, you can step out and you can come and Kent and I would have the greatest privilege to be able to share with you this gospel. But you respond to the Lord's Supper as the Lord leads you to do that as well. Let's all stand together.